0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, let me welcome you to today's Beeson Podcast. I have a very special guest, a friend and colleague to talk with today, Dr. Paul House. Welcome, Paul, to the Beeson Podcast.
1: Thank you. It's wonderful to be here.
0: I want to begin with a personal reference because uh, Paul and I have known each other for a long time. Paul was actually my student many years ago at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary
1: in Louisville, Kentucky. Do you remember those days, Paul? I do. You had me in class in the spring of 1981, Wow! uh, so 31 years ago for, uh, I believe, the beginning of church history to the Reformation.
0: That was right after I started teaching because I came to the seminary in Louisville in 1979, so you were in the first batch of students that came through in those years. I remember you as a student. I remember you were bright, you were precocious, uh, you were not afraid to speak up on occasion. And that's still a trait of yours, I believe.
1: I suppose. I don't don't remember all that. I I remember the class because it was the first time I really recalled being asked to memorize and write about the Apostles' Creed. I also recall that you took a lot of time to get us past Augustine and then had to hurry a great deal just (laughs) to get into the 13th century. So it was a good course, and I, I remember it fondly.
0: Now, you actually finished your Ph.D. at Southern Seminary. I did, 1986. Working with Dr. John D.W. Watts. That's correct. In the field of Old Testament studies. Right. And that's the field that you've pursued. And I want to talk about that primarily on the podcast today. You've become a very well known major thinker, shaper of Old Testament theology and Old Testament studies. But before we get to that, I want to say a little bit about your work here at Beeson because you served for six years as our Associate Dean for Academic Affairs. Uh, if you could summarize what Beeson is about from your vantage point as the academic leader of our faculty for that period of time, what would you say?
1: I think we were about shaping serious shepherds for God's people. And to shape serious shepherds, you have to have faculty members who are committed to the truth, knowledgeable about it, committed to students, and wanting not just to give them intellectual Ammunition, which is very, very important. We don't want to leave that out. But also be models and people who come alongside them and help make them into uh, caring, effective, thinking, growing uh, pastors and teachers. So that's what I said about shaping. That is, our faculty has to help do that, and our staff does that, and everyone around. But serious shepherds, not just people who – want to go into ministry for a career, and again, shepherds, people who actually care for and feed their people.
0: One of the things I know you and I have talked about a lot is this whole concept of calling. Every student who applies uh, to Beeson Divinity School, we require to express in writing their own sense of calling, how God has spoken to them and called them to this line of work, to this vocation. That's the Latin word,
1: vocatio. What does calling really mean in terms of a biblical understanding of it? Well, I think calling comes from the Lord, and we all agree that the Lord has called every Christian to Himself and gifted every Christian to do work for Him. But He has especially called some people to spend all their time serving God's people and equipping them. And so those are really the people we want to focus on at Beeson.
0: Now, this spring, you presented our biblical studies lectures. We have three endowed lectureships at Beeson every year, and one of them we call the biblical studies lectures, the first lectureship that was actually endowed when our school was started 25 years ago. And you chose as the theme of your lectureship, God's character in God's worlds. That's a fascinating title. What did you mean by that, and what did you say in that
1: lectureship? I think all of Christianity is is related to God's character, who He is and what He's done for us. And I think that His character, His grace, compassion, and justice is played out in our world every day. So I wanted us to think about who He is, particularly using Exodus 34, 6, and 7, which states that He is gracious and compassionate, long-suffering, forgiving, and yet is just in that He does not clear the guilty. And so I wanted to take that passage, which is quoted many times in the Old Testament, and show how his character gets worked out in daily life.
0: You know, you did point out how often in the Scriptures this text, it's almost a foundational text, isn't it, for the character of God, who God is, keeps being repeated in different contexts. I know in Psalm 77, for example, uh, the psalmist is going through a, a deep, dark valley, an abyss, and he calls into question each of those characteristics of God mentioned in Exodus 34. Has God forgotten to be merciful? Is he no longer compassionate? And so this is a text that really shapes the whole understanding of the people of Israel
1: as to who their God really was. I think that's right, and I, and I think it helps us to understand God as we look at all these contexts so that Nehemiah uses it to pray for God's forgiveness late in the history of Israel psalm 145 uses the text to praise god at a similar uh, juncture and also it's used to uh, offer intercession to god to help people but as you say it's often used also to talk about uh, where is god when we hurt where is god when i've sinned so that in lamentations three the writer there uses to say at the very bottom when he had sinned and he had thrown away so much of his life He could see that God's character could bring him back.
0: Now, in your opening lecture, you you made a comment that sin is personal. What did you mean by that? And would you say that sin is more than personal, it's also social, that it has to do with the community? What does that phrase
1: mean, sin is personal? From my context, uh, basically as a rural person who's come to live in the city, um, personal to me does mean not just yourself, but your family, your community frankly, the ground we walk in and the the air we breathe. And so to me, all of that means personal. So what I'm trying to say is sin's not some abstract thing that happens out there in our minds or amongst the world somehow. It's here, it's now, it's everywhere, it's faithlessness to God, it's harmful to others, and we should see it as something up close and in our lives.
0: And that's related, is it not, to the fact that the one against whom we sin ultimately is a personal God. So in Psalm 51, David says, against you, you only have I sinned. Well, of course, he sinned against others as well, Bathsheba and Uriah. But there was a sense in which God was deeply offended
1: by what David had done and what we do. Yes, and I think it's inevitable when we sin against God, we we harm other people one way or the other. And when we harm other people, whether we think about it or not, we have uh, moved against God, and so I think there, in any way you think about it, sin runs all directions. But it's not just out there; it's not just intellectual or philosophical, though it is. We can talk about it in those terms, but it actually affects people in, I guess, in ascending ways, all the way all, all, in our world.
0: What would you say, Paul, to pastors that are trying to preach both God's mercy and God's justice? And looking for
1: a biblical balance on these subjects. Yeah, I think you could start, I mean, with a text like Exodus 34 and do what we did in the lecture, which is trace and find various texts. That uh, so so in a preaching series you could start with Exodus thirty four six and seven then take it the, uh, take the other passages that quote it because as we've already said it's they have different purposes for their use in the Old Testament so you could preach about how this is used for intercession how it's used for confession how it's used for encouragement how it's used to confess sins etc so you would have a wide range and a biblical base for a good topical sermon. But another way to understand God's uh, grace and God's uh, justice is to preach through whole books of the Bible. It would be very difficult to miss this in a book like Zephaniah, a short book, or in any of the Gospels, or in a book like even first and second Thessalonians. So you see, as you work through even short stretches, you'll see the kindness of God, but that does not mean God's grace can be taken for granted. As in he will never do anything, whether good or bad, as the wicked say in the uh, book of Zephaniah,
0: I guess one of the difficulties in our contemporary world in speaking about the character of God, as you did in these talks, is the reality of the world and the problem of evil of suffering in the world uh we We've had a spate of recent books, we call it the New Atheism that call into question the very characteristics of God mentioned in exodus thirty four uh, What would you say to a pastor who is called to preach God's Word in a world like this
1: filled with questions like these? I think they're good questions, they're certainly questions as you've already said they are asked in the in the Bible, but I also sense that we as human beings don't like the part of Exodus 34, 6, and 7 that points out that God is bearing with our twistedness, our iniquity, our rebellion, which is usually translated transgression, or with our missing of the good marks that God has set for us, our sin. So a lot of these questions really underplay the nature of sin in its totality, the very thing we've already been talking about. And so, in a way, we want to hold God accountable for his end of the problems in the world without coming to grips with our own mm-hmm. and so I think it's not to shift the question, but in a lot of in a lot of those sorts of discussions, I fail to hear people say, "Our responsibility, human beings have done this, um, and we just want to say, why doesn't God bail us out no matter?" What we do—it's a bit like going to the doctor after we've rejected all counsel, and all of a sudden say, "Well, fix me," and if not, it's your fault.
0: We like to get ourselves off the hook.
1: I think so, but God doesn't ask to be let off the hook in the Bible. He takes full responsibility for His role as a Creator, Sustainer, uh, Redeemer, and Judge. And so we get this full, balanced picture, and we see what God is doing uh, um, to—I guess ameliorate the problems that human beings cause through their sinning.
0: And part of that of course is taking on himself the burden of our humanity in the incarnation,
1: isn't it? It is. And it's also him taking his our sins in himself on the cross and dying for all this wretchedness, all this sin that we have uh, committed and giving us the chance to be made completely new through his resurrection and our our future resurrection. So The Bible also teaches all of us to have hope. What we see now is not the end product. But if I were uh, an atheist, uh, or if I were someone who was uh, just questioning God's goodness, and I didn't anchor my look to the future, my forward outlook, in the hope of the resurrection uh, and in God's promises. Then I think I would have a significant problem. Now, you mentioned earlier your rural roots. I wonder if you'd say a little bit more about that. You're from
0: Missouri, the show me state, right? That's correct. Talk about your upbringing and kind of how that has shaped your own perspective on life and theology.
1: Yeah, I was raised in southwest Missouri in a rural area in a farming community. Uh, Probably many of us could say this that we knew four generations of our family, we knew four generations of a lot of people's family. A very much a connected community, and a, with people with deep, deep roots uh, there in our county and in our area. And so, I, I suppose I look at the world in a very connected fashion, both for good and ill. I also see a lot of God's um, image in people who aren't Christians. Mm. They're they're capable of marvelous things and extraordinary feats, mm. and yet at the same time, you can see how how sin mars that. Also, I think it helped me think very carefully about. Uh, our life on earth, what our what our home should be like, what our communities should look like, and how we 're being stewards or not of of god 's world, so it seems to me like everything from your family to your friends, to your school to your churches to the ground you walked on we 're all connected and very historical. Uh, as you as you thought about uh, uh, thought about life, and so that shaped me. I continue to see things uh, whole, whether it's a divinity school or a church or, you know, anything I'm trying to be part of.
0: So, from rural Missouri, you pursued doctoral work in Old Testament studies. You've you've taught actually at several schools: at Wheaton College, at Trinity Episcopal School for the Ministry, at Taylor University before coming to Beeson Divinity School, and. Um, I want to ask you about uh, the approach, I think, that's come to characterize your work, not yours only, but you've become a leader in what might be called a theological interpretation of the Bible or the movement of biblical theology. There was a time when biblical theology was kind of riding high in the popular mind back in the, I guess, late 40s, 50s, and then it kind of went into eclipse. It's come back in a very interesting way. Talk a little bit about what is biblical theology? How do you approach it? And where is it leading us in the future for Old Testament and New Testament studies?
1: Right. I think uh, coming out of World War II, a lot of people had sensed that biblical studies, particularly in the non-evangelical context, had divided the Bible into all sorts of small pieces behind the text. And so we just had pieces of the Bible, pieces of the Pentateuch, pieces of Isaiah, pieces of the Gospels. And so uh, biblical theology was a way of saying, how does the whole picture hold together What are the distinctives in Christianity that you can't find in any other religion? And what authority does that have in our life? Now, after World War II and into the 70s, this movement kind of ebbed in non-evangelical circles in part because they did not continue to hold to the authority of Scripture. Eventually, you can't have any authority without the authority of the text that God has inspired and given us. But in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and on, there's come a lot of interest in biblical theology from evangelicals, not just evangelicals, because I think scholars uh, of a certain sort will always want to put the Bible back together mm. and see it as a whole. It's a, it's a human desire to have things whole. But evangelicals have said, well, we believe in the inspiration and authority of Scripture. We believe the law was actually written before the prophets. We do think that uh, Paul and Jesus are in concert with one another. And so it became more of a natural thing to talk about biblical unity, and you could do that by tracing themes or by uh, going through the different pieces of the Bible and seeing its connections. You could do this from the nature of God or of Christ. So there's been, I think in the last decade in particular, a lot of people uh, with interest in, in biblical theology and biblical wholeness for biblical ministry
0: one scholar whose works i have read is graham goldsworthy's australian scholar Say a little bit about him and the approach he brings to this
1: yeah goldsworthy is an australian as you said he he taught at uh, moore college in sydney australia Uh, in the 50s and 60s the head of the college would have been marcus lone uh, broughton knox and also his colleague donald robinson And they were interacting with a Catholic scholar, Gabriel Abair, and with John Bright and several other scholars, and they began to talk about the unity of the Bible. And so they established a course that began every student studying how the Bible held together as a whole, historically, thematically, with Christ at the center of that message. And so Goldsworthy became uh, really the one who wrote up basic books that um, uh, Christians could read and uh, could gain understanding from. And so Goldsworthy uh, is is probably the best known of those scholars. But from there, I think um, they influenced writers in Britain, so people like Desmond Alexander and that sort of writer. Mm -hmm. And then um, in the United States through friends like um, Mark Dever, who was influenced by that group, Kent Hughes, who did sabbaticals in Australia and became influenced by it, and so there came, uh, that was one of the strong threads of biblical theology uh, in evangelicalism today.
0: For our listeners who like to sometimes uh, pick up new ideas and new books and new titles, one of Goldsworthy's books, I think it's still in print, is called According to
1: Plan. It is. That's his foundational work, yeah. yes.
0: And it's a great read. I would recommend it as a kind of introduction to biblical theology by an evangelical scholar, very much in touch with the literature that you're talking about. Let me ask you to say a little bit more about your own approach and some of your own writings. Uh, Because you've written, I don't want to say all over the Bible, but you've written over an awful lot of the Old Testament. Uh, You've done a commentary on kings. You've written a commentary on lamentations. You have an Old Testament survey, which is sort of a textbook for undergraduates, and Old Testament theology, a textbook for really seminary students. Say a little bit about this writing. Uh, what you've done. What you've tried to accomplish. Where you're headed. What's your
1: trajectory? Yeah, I started my academic work in as, a, as a, in my bachelor's degree in English literature with a double major in um, biblical studies. So then I did a master's in English before I did my theological studies. So I always had an interest in writing and literature. When I wrote my dissertation on Zephaniah, believe it or not, uh, the trends were so much to see what was behind Zephaniah that I really wanted to write a book that showed these 53 verses could be a unity. Mm-hmm. And then the next year began to look at the minor prophets as a unity, and those were separate kind of books for scholars. But I was teaching Old Testament survey all the time to undergrads, and they didn't know much about the Old Testament, and so I thought it was a perfect time to teach them the contents of the Old Testament, show them the unity of the Old Testament, uh, as the New Testament writers knew it, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so I wrote Old Testament survey, frankly, out of, out of my work with undergraduates, and dedicated that book to a special class of students um, at Taylor University. When I wrote the Old Testament theology, it was just kind of the next step up how how can we focus on god all the way through and god's work with human beings and so this that book had uh, i think more secondary literature more scholars cited and that sort of thing when i was given the assignment to write on first and second kings again my idea was to take this history of israel to show the major characters in it how the real people operated within a real story but a real story told well hmm and the theological content uh, that was there and so some of these some of these uh, writings have come out of my own classroom teaching my own desire to see people uh, understand the old testament and see it um, as a whole piece in connection with the new testament and some of them just come out of special assignments that people have given but i love writing i enjoy doing it and i i really think that it gives any scholar a chance not to become famous but to teach people that you've never met.
0: Now, we've been talking about Old Testament theology, biblical theology, uh, but one of the things that we emphasize here at Beeson, as you know very well, is the importance of biblical languages. Every student is required to take several courses in Greek and Hebrew. Why is that an important uh, factor in the way in which we train pastors uh, for the churches today?
1: Yeah, I think two, two things are important in a curriculum. That's to get the whole picture and then to be able to put the small parts together. And one of the things that Greek and Hebrew does for any student is to make them pay close, patient, sustained attention to the text. We get so used to reading the English, and so we we think... We know what's there. We get so used to the interpretation of it that we just decide beforehand, but when you actually have to pay close attention to the words, the phrases, it slows you down. It makes you look at what the words really mean, makes you look up other context, and just grounds you more closely in the small bits of the text, which should then gives, help you uh, know that you've got the big parts right. Yeah. So I think I think an education has to help a student do many things. And then, of course, in our classes in in preaching, and even in our, our fourth semester language classes, students have to give oral presentations. They have to preach and teach. Mm-hmm. So we're constantly moving from the smallest bit to the congregation, but always keeping this big picture of God's redemptive plan in mind.
0: I think that's the critique we sometimes hear. This is just a cafeteria approach to th- theological education, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of something else. But what you're saying is that all of these parts cohere. They do belong together. And there is an overarching storyline, a a grand picture that God has given us in his word. We're not making it up. We're not fantasizing about it. But we are being faithful to what he himself has revealed of who he is and what he wants us to do.
1: That's correct. I I think... God has explained his character in Exodus thirty-four, six and seven and other places, and he's quoted that that passage is quoted and shown to be the foundational passage for who God is. Not only that, there's a story told that's that is cited in passages in Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, then again in the Psalms, and then Acts 7 and Acts 13 tell that same story explaining that the Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. So we have this story a curriculum, that is what you study in seminary, has to keep that big picture in mind, teach a student to do the small bits so they can preach and teach. Our theology and our church history at its best, I think, in the Christian tradition um, reflects that wholeness and that specificity. So I think a good curriculum is not 30 classes a student can take in any order, but should give them foundation in the big picture and the small picture. Show them how that has worked out in Christian history in each tradition of the church, uh, how they can show and teach and live that in a congregation, and how we should take that message then to the ends of the earth. So uh, I think in that brief summary, I could fit virtually any course in our curriculum, but we don't think it's just 30 classes equals a, a degree equals a minister. We have a certain way of shaping those shepherds.
0: I'm speaking today to Dr. Paul R. House. He's my colleague, my friend, uh, a fellow worker here at Beeson Divinity School, an Old Testament theologian and professor of history and uh, theology and Hebrew. Um, we're almost out of time, Paul, but I wanted to ask you a couple of other things. Uh, uh Maybe a year or so ago, you wrote a brief but very pungent, poignant article for a journal in theological education. Uh, really outlining, I thought quite brilliantly, our own approach to theological education here at Beeson. I wonder if you could summarize that for our listeners today.
1: Yeah, the article was uh, really about why we would focus on personal, face-to-face, on-campus education as opposed, say, to online and over the web and over the Internet. And one of our characteristics at Beeson is that we are personal, that means face-to-face, smaller classes, faculty are mentoring students and knowing them. And so I, I always like to say we're we, is a place for factory work, uh factory made things, but we are we are really um special making uh we are crafting students. Ministry is a face to face personal thing. Um, You don't want someone necessarily visiting the hospital by Skype unless that's the only way they can see you. If you have a family member that lives in another continent, well, we understand that. But Christian ministry is done face-to-face. God, as you've often said, God didn't send a video clip. He didn't even send another written document. He sent His Son, who came to be in flesh, with us. And He sent out His apostles personally, individually, and as we see, As people minister to people, the gospel has spread out to the ends of the earth, and it will continue to do so. But I I believe that online education does not require people to make a full commitment to ministry. I think it does not require people then to deal with people. And I certainly don't think we need more ministers who don't love and know and share with people. It lacks the ability for colleagues to get together. A lot of my teaching is done for me when my students talk after class and help one another sort things out. So I think we need more ministers who are, who are committed to congregations. I think online studies and things should most help lay people who don't have the opportunity to study full-time, who can get free lectures and that sort of thing. But I believe we'll make a huge mistake if we try to educate ministers – or school teachers, or nurses, or any other personal kind of profession um, apart from people in the day-to-day life.
0: Now for any of you who just may happen to be listening to this Beeson podcast on the internet, we don't want you to be offended by what Dr. House has just said. What we are against is reductionism. We're against reducing our calling to a kind of technology that depersonalizes. And so we we make use of technology in appropriate ways, but we also draw some boundaries and we put some emphases in some other areas. And that article by Dr. House, uh, you brought that out very uh, powerfully, I thought.
1: We think think the technology ought to support the personal. And one of our colleagues uh, from Germany has said to me, Americans can be so naive about technology. We think it's always a better thing. Sometimes we need to stop and say, is is our technology supporting our people, and at what stage would it replace the personal? And when it does that, it, it's really problematic. So we should always be asking, is it supporting personal relationships that we're building? If it's replacing it, particularly in, again, in, in many, many kinds of professions where the personal matters most, I think we need to t- ask some serious questions. And I, I wrote the article in part because I was asked to, but also in part because – I don't see our seminaries asking this question seriously enough.
0: Well, I want to ask you one more thing. You are currently serving as the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. Uh, would you tell, for the sake of our listeners, what is the ETS, we call it, what is your role as the president, and
1: where is this movement of evangelical scholars and theologians going? Yeah, the Evangelical Theological Society was founded in the late 1940s. Uh, at a time when evangelical scholarship was at a low ebb in the United States it was founded to improve evangelical scholarship uh, so it could better serve the church uh, today there are 4000 members to in the ETS about 400 of whom live outside the United States every year we have a meeting that has about 600 papers presented uh, and we have something over 2000 registrants the goal of the ETS remains to ha- have scholarship that is based in the inerrancy of God's Word, the full truthfulness of it. Also then to but find scholarship that is orthodox, biblically, theologically grounded, also quite frankly more for the church in the end than perhaps some other types of societies. We believe good scholarship will result in, in better churches uh, if that scholarship is rightly understood. So we have we are grateful that our that our founders set us up. We believe that we have a, a real stewardship to bear. Uh but it's never easy to to uh take a movement forward into the next into the next decade.
0: Some of you who are listening are pastors, maybe young ministers. I would encourage you to get involved with the Evangelical Theological Society. There's a journal published, the Journal of the Evangelical Theological. You can subscribe to this. Uh, there's a website uh, you can go and find out about programs, you can uh, come to the annual meeting, and it's a wonderful opportunity to see the theological dimension of our pastoral work. And increasingly, it seems to me, Paul, there are a number of pastors who are showing up at our ETS meetings, and I think that's a good thing.
1: you're All right. I don't know how many do come, but, a, but uh, a lot, I would say dozens, and they are welcome there. It's a place not only where they can buy books and hear talks, uh, but also share with one another. Uh, they all. We also have regional meetings that that people could um, uh, easily come to, and so pastors are are not only welcome; they're encouraged to come. We we benefit a lot. We have a worship we have worship time every day at ETS. I think uh, you see you'll you'll find fellowship with other pastors of like mind from many denominations there. So that is it is an exciting thing, and it is a it is a facet of our work that we treasure.
0: My guest on today's Beeson podcast has been Dr. Paul R. House, an Old Testament theologian, a colleague, friend here at Beeson Divinity School. Thank you, Paul, for this conversation today. It's been a pleasure and an honor. I want to tell you about a wonderful event that's planned for this summer. It's the 25th Annual Beeson Pastor School. The dates are July 23 through 26, 2012, right here on our campus a wonderful array of workshops, seminars, worship services, great Bible teaching by Dr. Steve Brown. My colleague, Dr. Robert Smith Jr., will be preaching along with our friend, Bishop Will Williman. It's going to be a wonderful time. Hope you'll come and join us. In Matthew 6.31, Jesus said to his disciples, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. And we hope that you'll do that this summer at the Bison Pastor School. For more information and to register for the Pastor School, just go to our website, BeesonDivinity.com. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com.